Buzzard writes in, you hate Carlos Hyde, but what about Sean Drone? Good question. This buzzard message and response is brought to you by FF Draft Prep. You know the metrics. You know the players you want. But what you need is a draft day command center, a super intuitive, customizable draft day command center is here in the form of FF Draft Prep. You pick the data points you want to display, and it even helps you anticipate the picks of owners around you while being constantly aware of the best available players at every position. FF Draft Prep changes the game. Use the promo code DIEHARDS to receive 20% off and arm yourself with the tool you need to make fast, intelligent decisions while on the clock. No more panic picks. No more bad drafts with FF Draft Prep. I own Sean Drone in most leagues, and I own Carlos Hyde exactly nowhere. Why would you own Carlos Hyde? We talked in the last show about the mountain that Carlos Hyde needs to climb in order to meet ADP expectations. Carlos Hyde's ADP is inside the top 40. Meanwhile, Sean Drone's ADP, 195.3 on myfantasyleague.com. Sean Drone was not a super efficient player last year, but his 26.7% juke rate was inside the top 40, and his 77.1% catch rate was inside the top 30, so he is effective in space. Sean Drone has shown passing game dynamism, and the 49ers will be throwing a lot because Chip Kelly likes to run a lot of plays, number one, and Vegas is projecting the 49ers to lose approximately 11 games in 2016. So the 49ers will be in comeback mode a lot. They will be running the two-minute offense a lot. And I believe Sean Drone will be the primary running back during the two-minute drill offense that the San Francisco 49ers will be implementing this year. I think Sean Drone's opportunity share is going to hover between 35 and 40%, and he will soak up voluminous targets as the primary checkdown for checkdown artist Blaine Gabbard. It makes perfect sense. All of the external forces are working together to enhance Sean Drone's fantasy potential in 2016. On the other hand, all external forces are going to be working against Carlos Hyde. The Carlos Hyde enthusiasm is a conundrum I will never solve. This fascination with the grinder-pounder role in the NFL by fantasy gamers is just so bizarre to me. It makes no sense. Drafting Carlos Hyde is essentially going out of your way to take the harder path. By drafting Carlos Hyde in the fourth round, you are opting to climb a mountain, whereas I am taking the tunnel by drafting Sean Drone at the end of my draft. It's just the easier path. It's easier for Sean Drone to ring up fantasy points, leaking out of the backfield and catching the ball in space than it is for Carlos Hyde to try to get past seven defenders 
who are on their toes because the quarterback is not keeping them honest with his arm. So I will take Sean Drone every time. We talk about ADP arbitrage. I hate that term. But when you look at two running backs on the same team, if you wanted to execute some ADP arbitrage, you would focus your attention solely on drafting Sean Drone and ignoring Carlos Hyde in all formats. Another buzzard writes in, I can't believe you think Corey Coleman is safe from Josh Gordon. And this buzzard message is brought to you by Apex Fantasy Leagues, an exciting place to play seasonal fantasy football for money. With a skill-based format and industry-leading payouts, Apex ensures the best fantasy players win big money. Apex hosts 12-team PPR leagues and provides a variety of drafting options, live email, serpentine auction. Apex also offers Dynasty Leagues. And if you're worried that your format won't fill, don't worry. Apex will pump up the prize pool to make sure that the league fills. It's pretty cool. Not only does Apex have high stakes payouts, if you truly trust your fantasy football skills, Apex is the place to play that mitigates randomness. The platform features blind bidding, i.e. fair free agent acquisitions, and two matchups per week versus single head-to-head matchups, so you can compete against someone each week without worrying about an arbitrary strength of schedule. So go to apexfantasyleagues.com now and sign up today. And now we're going to start a segment I like to call Me Reading Roto World, because I believe that Corey Coleman is already the entrenched number one wide receiver on the Cleveland Browns, and there's no way Josh Gordon will be able to supplant him. According to the Cleveland Plains dealer, all signs point to Corey Coleman opening the season as the Browns' number one wide receiver, and it makes perfect sense. Corey Coleman was drafted at pick 15. That's where Odell Beckham Jr. was drafted, and Corey Coleman's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is also Odell Beckham Jr. He's the next Odell Beckham Jr. So why on earth would you even consider negatively impacting the next Odell Beckham Jr.'s development by forcing him to change positions once Josh Gordon arrives in week five. That would be completely illogical. Now, NFL coaches are capable of some truly asinine decisions, but the idea that the Cleveland Browns would disrupt Corey Coleman's development, have him learn a different position upon the arrival of, to, to accommodate Josh Gordon is farcical just not possible i love Corey coleman in all formats he's the first wide receiver i'm drafting in dynasty and he's a wide receiver i'm targeting in redraft his adp is falling once josh gordon was reinstated his adp fell a full round on myfantasyleague.com. he's now being drafted outside the top 80 players there are no rookie wide receivers being drafted in the top 80 we haven't seen that in years Even Tavon Austin, three years ago, was being drafted in the top 80 players. So many rookie wide receivers busted last year. There's been an overcorrection. Corey Coleman is a sublime prospect. He runs a 4-4-240, a 133.4 burst score, 94th percentile. And while he didn't run the agility drills at the combine or his pro day, 
Looking back at the Nike camps that Corey Coleman participated in, he was always at the top of his class in agility. That's why he compares so closely to Odell Beckham Jr., except that Corey Coleman is faster and burstier and was more productive at the college level than Odell Beckham Jr. So we're talking about a more athletic, more dominant version of Odell Beckham Jr., and you think that Josh Gordon's going to threaten his role? Are you mad? Seriously, are you out of your mind, buzzard? Josh Gordon hasn't played well since 2013, three years ago. Yes, he played five games in 2014, but he played very poorly. League bottom efficiency. And even when he was prolific in 2013, he wasn't in the top 20 in production premium on playerprofiler.com. His catch rate was outside the top 40. He wasn't particularly efficient in 2013. He was prolific on the back of huge volume because he was the only receiver of consequence on the roster. But now Corey Coleman has arrived And for the first four weeks of the season, Corey Coleman will be the only wide receiver of consequence on the roster, and he will receive huge volume. And by the time Josh Gordon arrives, Corey Coleman will probably already be a star. They will be running out of Corey Coleman jerseys to sell in the stadium. There will be a backlog of orders to get Corey Coleman apparel by the time October rolls around. Josh Gordon will be an afterthought, and I have serious questions about Josh Gordon's effectiveness once he arrives on the Browns roster in mid-October, because we've seen very few examples of a player missing a full season and then returning and delivering equivalent production upon his return. I can think of one example, Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson's return from His ACL tear was faster than any player has ever returned from a torn ACL. And then he returned last year from a full year off and was right back to being a top flight fantasy running back at age 30 with well over 2,000 carries on his odometer. How is that possible? Well, knowing that Adrian Peterson is human and that he's actually not a mythical creature, as a realist... I would speculate that he is using a substance that helps him perform at a higher level, that he has found a fountain of youth at the pharmacy. If I am standing on a trap door and I need to make an educated guess at something I cannot know for sure, the question is, is Adrian Peterson on HGH? And if if I'm standing on a trap door and if I get the answer wrong, I fall to my death, I would guess that Adrian Peterson is leveraging substances that allow him to rejuvenate his strength and athleticism. Would you? Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. If it's for your life and you had to get this question correct, what would you speculate? How is Adrian Peterson doing it? Because we've never seen anything like him before, and he's not an alien. He's a human being. And back through the last few decades, when we see something unprecedented, typically we slap our forehead years later and we feel like suckers. Except with Bartolo Colon. I don't feel bad not guessing that Bartolo Colon was taking HGH. Who could have guessed that? It was easier to build a case that D. Gordon was on HGH than Bartolo Colon. The speculation is that half of NFL players are taking HGH, particularly in the offseason, to enhance their strength and conditioning. Here's the problem. 
Josh Gordon cannot afford to take any performance-enhancing substances. He's already one strike away from being banned for life. So he can't risk taking any kind of steroid or human growth hormone or any substance that raises his testosterone levels. He can't do it. He doesn't have the same luxury that Adrian Peterson had when he was coming back to the league. Essentially, Josh Gordon is boxed in. He cannot get any assistance from the pharmacy to get back on the field and play to his former abilities. Without that assistance, I don't think it's going to be possible to find the fountain of youth and be 2013 Josh Gordon. He doesn't have that in him anymore. He's been away too long, and the last glimpse we saw of Josh Gordon on the football field, he was one of the most inefficient wide receivers in the NFL. Josh Gordon will never be a threat to Corey Coleman. Corey Coleman, who is in the process of torching every Browns cornerback in training camp. Today's show is devoted to reading Roto World. I'm reading on Roto World that Corey Coleman torched Justin Gilbert, and then they got in a fight after Corey Coleman caught a touchdown pass over him. Corey Coleman is dominating throughout camp, and he will dominate throughout preseason. And once the season starts, he will exceed all expectations and have a huge head start on Josh Gordon. Corey Coleman will be halfway around the track By the time Josh Gordon even gets out of the blocks and Josh Gordon has no chance to catch him, especially now because Josh Gordon has already pulled his quad. He practices for a day and then he has to leave with a pulled quad because of course he pulled a quad. His body is not used to the rigors of playing professional football. So I believe it will be a stop and start comeback for Josh Gordon throughout 2016. Just yet another reason why he will command less targets and have a smaller impact on Corey Coleman's 2016 opportunity than most people believe. Now, I'm also reading on Roto World that Rico Gathers is impressing the coaches at Cowboys training camp. Rico Gathers was a basketball player at Baylor, a first-team All-Big 12 basketball player. He's a phenomenal athlete, 6'8", 275, a giant man. But he only runs a 4.8440. We don't know his burst. We don't know his agility. We don't know anything about him other than his 40 time and the fact that he was a phenomenal athlete at Baylor. We've talked about this on previous shows. The basketball players are the best athletes on campus. So I like Rico Gathers' chances of making the Dallas Cowboys roster, particularly because Gavin Escobar is recovering from a torn Achilles tendon. Gavin Escobar runs the same 40 time as Rico Gathers, 484. So after a repaired Achilles tendon, what does Gavin Escobar run? A 495? I'm not rostering Gavin Escobar even in the deepest dynasty leagues any longer. James Hanna and Rico Gathers represent an existential threat to Gavin Escobar. And the Rico Gathers news on Roto World was interesting because you look back through time, there are multiple tight ends 
that emerge as potential starters during preseason. We don't see this with running backs. We rarely see this with wide receivers, and we certainly don't see it with quarterbacks. The player who starts at the bottom of the depth chart and rises to the top by the end of preseason. It's very rare, but it does happen more often at the tight end position. Think about Larry Donnell. Think about Gary Barnage. Think about Zach Miller. Ben Watson. Will Ty. Three years ago, it was Charles Clay. This year, there are a number of tight ends that will likely be locked in as starters by the end of preseason and have a chance to be tight end ones in fantasy. Vance McDonald, Lance Kendricks, Jason Morrow, Virgil Green, Ryan Griffin, Luke Wilson. Now Cameron Brait has been announced as the starting tight end in Tampa Bay. The Miami Dolphins have announced that Jordan Cameron's role will not expand. Jordan Cameron has never been an every-down tight end. Deion Sims is technically behind Jordan Cameron on the depth chart, but it's conceivable that Deion Sims logs a higher snap share this season because he's more versatile, because he's bigger and more versatile. So there are a number of tight ends in the 20 to 40 range of my rankings. You can go to my rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Every year, five to 10 tight ends break out out of nowhere. I don't think it'll be Rico Gathers, but it could be Zach Sudfeld on the New York Jets. Why not? Could be Seth DeValve on the Cleveland Browns. Why not? It could be Virgil Green. Why not? But when I read this news about Rico Gathers, it just reinforces the idea that you should not be drafting tight ends in the first 10 rounds. Just say no to Gronkowski, even if he slips into the second round. You're better off drafting Brandon Cooks or Keenan Allen in the second round over Rob Gronkowski. And if we keep going round by round and listing tight ends available in those rounds, Jordan Reed, Greg Olson... Delani Walker, Travis Kelsey. My counter argument will always be you're better off drafting a wide receiver or a running back in that draft slot and taking advantage of the influx of talent that we always see by the end of training camp at the tight end position. At the wide receiver position, it's much harder to ascend the depth chart. Just ask Jeff Janis. Ask Charles Johnson. The Green Bay Packers released their wide receiver depth chart and Janis was slotted in as third string. Charles Johnson was slotted in as a second string wide receiver after playing the starting X receiver role throughout mini camp and early in training camp. So it's understandable why Jeff Janis and Charles Johnson would be demoralized after seeing the depth charts posted for the first time. It exposes the NFL as a phony hypocrisy. Work hard and you'll get opportunity. Watch hard knocks. The coaches shout those platitudes at their players on a perpetual loop. And it's a lie. It's a lie. It is phony. It is disingenuous motivational tactics these coaches use. If you excel in practice, you'll get an opportunity. Unless we drafted Laquan Treadwell in the first round. Or unless we're trying to instill Devontae Adams with confidence. Well then... You're going to have to take one for the team, Charles Johnson. You're going to have to take one for the team, Jeff Janis. How much longer do these players have to take one for the team? And watch as players like Devontae Adams and Laquan Treadwell get slotted in as first and second team wide receivers above them, based solely on draft capital, not on-field performance. It's the ultimate unearned opportunity 
Being drafted in the early rounds affords you unearned opportunity. Even if you believe that Laquan Treadwell was an exceptional prospect at the college level, you cannot tell me that he deserves to start training camp as a first-string wide receiver at the expense of Charles Johnson. Charles Johnson, the most snake-bitten wide receiver in the NFL, lost his job with the Packers because he tore his ACL and didn't know it. Lost his job with the Browns because their front office was incompetent. Lost his starting job last year because he broke his ribs and couldn't breathe. But every day, he's there before any wide receivers arrive. And every time beat reporters chronicle Vikings practices, they always note that Charles Johnson is the one making the most plays on the outside. And what? And nothing. And nothing. The NFL is a false meritocracy. And the coaches are hypocrites. The coaches ask their players to be leaders. And then on occasions when the coach himself must show leadership, they carry water for the general manager. Devontae Adams is a second-string wide receiver on the Green Bay Packers. Get the hell out of here. It's embarrassing when the coaches type in Devontae Adams as a second-string wide receiver ahead of Jeff Janis. Do they feel their balls shrinking as they type it in or write it down on a piece of paper? Because you can't tell me Devontae Adams has had a successful training camp. He has not. He's had an enigmatic training camp. Because according to one beat reporter's observations, Devontae Adams is catching everything. He's having a great camp. According to another beat reporter's observations, Devontae Adams is catching nothing. He's struggling to gain separation, and he's struggling to convert contested catches. So which is it? I don't know. Watching Devontae Adams practice reps and then reporting on it is the heights of subjective sports speculation. That's why I don't pay attention to it. So many of you mention me when you read observations from beat reporters on Twitter about players from Jeff Janis to Austin Safarian Jenkins. I don't care. The training camp reporting on Devontae Adams is the proof point that it is irrelevant. It holds no weight. One beat reporter is saying the exact opposite of another beat reporter. We don't know where the truth is. So if no one is able to watch a practice and report the truth, don't read it. And if you read it, read it like you would read a tabloid. Don't internalize it. Just read it for entertainment purposes only. So we try to bring an entertainment quality to the show. But like a fantasy gamer, reading the beat reporter tea leaves, trying to glean real actionable information we can't simply entertain on this show, I also seek to provide you with concrete, actionable fantasy football advice. Free advice on the Roto Underworld radio station. You want some free advice? Here's some free advice for you, suckas. We've had buzzards write in asking me to outline my specific draft strategy and how I manage my team in season, so off we go. I start my draft with six wide receivers, assuming you can start three wide receivers and at least one flex. As long as I can start four receivers in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to be drafting six to start because my wide receivers will have bye weeks, my wide receivers will get injured, my wide receivers will underperform, and so I want to make sure I always have at least four high-end wide receivers on any given week that I can start, so I often start my draft with six exceptional wide receivers. 
And then I pivot to the running back position. I target pass-catching running backs like Giovanni Bernard, Duke Johnson, Arian Foster, Charles Sims, Sean Drone, as we mentioned earlier. But then I also target affordable between-the-tackles grinders like LeGarrette Blunt, like Jonathan Williams, like Spencer Ware, who could receive the high-leverage carries, particularly at the goal line. But there is one running back who doesn't fit either of those categories, and that's Tevin Coleman. I'm always drafting Tevin Coleman in the neighborhood of round 10 because he represents maximum ADP adjusted upside. You won't find a running back with more fantasy potential in the double digit rounds than Tevin Coleman. Tevin Coleman is one of the most talented running backs in the NFL. His talent profile is a lot closer to Todd Gurley than almost anyone realizes. And if I can get someone who's close to Todd Gurley level special, oh, you better believe I'm going to draft him in round 10. My God, he ran for over 2,000 yards at Indiana. What? Over seven yards a carry at Indiana. Yeah, we like Todd Gurley because even though the LA Rams are rarely in the red zone, he scores touchdowns anyway on long runs. That's something that Tevin Coleman is also capable of. And if Tevin Coleman's receiving skills improve this year, he has top five fantasy potential if Devontae Freeman gets hurt. Now, in the double-digit rounds, once I'm done stocking up on my running backs, I pick my quarterback, my tight end, and a handful of late-round flyer wide receivers with maximum upside. Philip Dorsett, Jeff Janis, Terrence Williams, Sammy Coates. Those are the types of wide receivers I am trying to acquire in the back half of the draft to supplement those elite wide receivers I have at the top of my roster. And I'm waiting till the end of the draft to take a quarterback and a tight end. I have no problem drafting Zach Miller, Will Ty, Vance McDonald, or Lance Kendricks at the end of the draft because those tight ends all have top 10 upside. Will Ty finish 2015 with 10 or more fantasy points in five of his last six games, and he's available in round 16 on MyFantasyLeague.com. And you can draft anyone from Tony Romo to Joe Flacco, quarterbacks fully capable of averaging 20 fantasy points per week at the end of your draft. There's never been a better time to implement a late round quarterback tactic than this season when all of the quarterbacks in that WR2 tier are essentially equal. The difference between my quarterback 13 and my quarterback 24 on my rankings on playerprofiler.com is slight. That's the difference between Jameis Winston and Derek Carr. We're talking about one projected fantasy point per week difference across a 12-player tier in the rankings. Who's going to score more fantasy points, Matt Ryan or Phillip Rivers? Who's going to score more fantasy points, Marcus Mariota or Tyrod Taylor? Well, who will score more fantasy points, Eli Manning or Jameis Winston? How about this? Who will score more fantasy points, Matthew Stafford or Alex Smith? Kirk Cousins or Blake Bortles? We don't know. We don't know the difference between these players in terms of fantasy points per game projections is decimal places. So just take whoever's left at the end. That's it. That's how you draft quarterbacks in single quarterback leagues. The end. What I just outlined was very specific, but when you think about it more broadly, it is zero RB. 
when I implemented that strategy in the Scott Fish Bowl, which is a super flex format, my quarterbacks were Joe Flacco and Tony Romo, and my wide receivers were Antonio Brown, Brandon Cooks, Josh Doxson, Julian Edelman, Larry Fitzgerald, Jermaine Curse, Allen Robinson, and Golden Tate. And zero RB is not upside down drafting. I repeat, zero RB and upside down drafting are not the same thing. They're not even similar. Upside down drafting is not actually about avoiding running backs. And anyone that's ever talked about upside down drafting has failed to provide an intellectual underpinning behind it. The intellectual underpinning behind zero RB is anti-fragility. And when I talk about intellectual underpinning, what I mean is zero RB is not just saying you should draft wide receivers in these rounds, you should draft running backs in these rounds, you should draft tight ends and quarterbacks in these rounds, as I just outlined. The buzzards wanted me to provide a very specific plan of attack for a draft round by round, so I provided it to you. But that's not how you explain the foundations of a strategy. Zero RB can be implemented in many different ways, depending on the draft format, depending on the drafter's preferences, because zero RB is a full-blown draft strategy and roster construction blueprint. And in the process of laying out his case for zero RB, Sean Siegel informed the fantasy community about the risks and forecast uncertainty inherent in the running back position. He supported his argument with sophisticated concepts backed by evidence. And his conclusion was, your early rounds should be devoted to drafting wide receivers because of their relatively high stability and forecast certainty in comparison to running backs and other positions. In his seminal work on Rotoviz, and that's a high-flying term, seminal work, but it is a seminal work on rotoviz.com, look for Anti-Fragility and the Myth of Value-Based Drafting by Sean Siegel. And in that article, he outlines why it is optimal to build an anti-fragile roster by stockpiling elite wide receivers early and then stocking up on late round running backs later. This strategy allows owners to take advantage of positional volatility instead of being crushed by it. When you implement robust RB, you are often crushed by the inherent fragility and volatility of the running back position. And because running backs are more fragile and more volatile than wide receivers, they're more difficult to forecast. Let's say you wanted to project a season-long fantasy output for a wide receiver and a running back, Devontae Freeman and Julio Jones. If you projected Julio Jones to score 21 fantasy points per game and Devontae Freeman to score 17 fantasy points per game, Those two projections are not created equal. This concept is often missed when fantasy gamers sit down to plan their draft. It's why value-based drafting doesn't work. Because if your pick is coming up in the fourth round, and you can either pick C.J. Anderson or Doug Baldwin. You have C.J. Anderson projected to score 16 fantasy points per game. You have Doug Baldwin projected to score 15 fantasy points per game. The value-based drafting approach says take the best available player according to your projected points cheat sheet. Take the better value player. Go for value. And that would be a mistake because your C.J. Anderson projection is laced 
with uncertainty, tainted with significantly more uncertainty than your Doug Baldwin projection. Would you be surprised if C.J. Anderson lost his job to Devontae Booker by the time the fantasy playoffs rolled around? Well, you shouldn't be. But would you be surprised if Doug Baldwin lost his job to Paul Richardson by the time the fantasy playoffs rolled around? Of course you would. It's unfathomable that Doug Baldwin would lose his job to a player beneath him on the depth chart. It's beyond fathomable that C.J. Anderson would lose his job. To a Devontae Booker. The two projections are not created equally. You may think that CJ Anderson represents a better value at that draft slot. And by selecting him, you are doing your team a disservice because you are using your most valuable assets, your early round picks, to acquire highly risky pieces of real estate. By drafting running backs in the early rounds, you are building a house on sand. You don't know what's going to happen to that house. A hurricane could come in and destroy it. And if you go robust RB, and if you draft three straight running backs in the first three rounds, in that case, you're essentially building a house on sand in a hurricane alley in a tornado zone on an earthquake fault line. Drafting running backs early is irrationally risky. I am far, 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 far less certain about any of my running back projections than I am my wide receiver projections. They are not created equal because the positions have widely varying fragility rates and year-to-year volatility. And it's intuitive. It's much easier to guess what a wide receiver is going to do on any given year than it is to guess a running back. But we have to make projections. We have to guess what will Devontae Freeman do this year, just like we have to guess what will Julio Jones do this year. But I'm so much more certain about my Julio Jones projection than I am my Devontae Freeman projection. And I'm also more certain about my Mohamed Sanu projection than I am my Devontae Freeman projection. And I'm a lot more certain about my Justin Hardy projection than I am my Devontae Freeman projection. Because year in, year out, running backs miss their projections at a much higher rate. So why are you drafting wide receivers and running backs as if they're equivalents? They're not. That's the great myth of value-based drafting, that running backs and wide receivers are equivalent, that one is just as easy to forecast as the other. They're not. Think about the game show. Let's make a deal. The wide receiver is that box. That box is smaller than the door. Door number two is exciting looking. Wow, that could be anything. The box, less exciting. But the host tells you there's a watch in the box. It could be a fossil watch that works well, but it's not expensive. Or it could be a Rolex. It could be $5,000. Exciting. That's the wide receiver. But door number two, that's the running back. You have no idea what's behind door number two. The best thing that can happen to your fantasy team on any given season is for you to acquire a Ladanian Tomlinson-level running back talent. Think about 2014 Le'Veon Bell scoring over 26 fantasy points per game. If you have Le'Veon Bell on your roster scoring 23.6 fantasy points per game, you are going to bulldoze your way to the fantasy football championship. But we haven't seen 2014 Le'Veon Bell since 2014 Le'Veon Bell. In the last two years, that 2014 Le'Veon Bell season has happened once. Last year, the number one fantasy running back scored more than two points less than the number one fantasy running back from the year before. It's a strategic advantage to find the number one running back in fantasy on a given year. 
but they're hard to find. And like Devontae Freeman, you also don't find them in the early rounds because the position is so volatile. But it's enticing. Door number two is enticing. That could be a sports car or it could be a goat. And not a goat like greatest of all time goat, like a billy goat, like that kind of goat. But you're drafting in the third round and you see that siren song running back and you just want to reach for it. It could be a sports car. And Zero RB tells us that that's a mistake. It's too risky. Use that highly valuable third round draft pick on a wide receiver. Go with the box. It could be a Breitling. Something incredibly valuable. Narrow your range of outcomes in those early rounds. Don't be so cavalier. Giving the running back positions fragility and volatility, given the inherent uncertainty of running back projections, drafting a running back early, it's the arrogant decision. Drafting a wide receiver is the humble decision. By drafting a wide receiver, you're saying, I recognize the difficulty in projecting season-long fantasy points. So I am going to select a player at the position that's more stable. It's the humble decision. Robust RB is the arrogant decision. Robust RB represents the heights of fantasy arrogance. And you do not avoid early round running backs by implementing upside down drafting. Because upside down drafting is not about avoiding all running backs in the early rounds. Upside down drafting has been dead and buried for a long time because it's merely a version of value-based drafting which was conceptually killed by the zero RB strategy and the conceptual underpinnings that I just laid out. Upside down drafting is not similar to zero RB with the exception that you often take a lot of wide receivers early if you are upside down drafting. Prior to 2013, the articles that outlined upside down drafting advocated drafting a quarterback in the first few rounds and a running back by round four. Does that sound like zero RB to you? It's not. And I can promise you, if an upside down drafter saw a first round running back leak into the second round, they would be pushing the button on that running back. A zero RB drafter who understands the fundamentals of anti-fragility would never do that. Upside down drafting was dead and it should have stayed dead. But now I'm seeing these weak resurrections of this upside down drafting zombie corpse. It's weird. Resurrecting the upside down drafting zombie corpse draft strategy reeks of desperation. Why? Why now? Why? Why? Because Rotoviz is beating you on both fronts? Their product and content is superior and their marketing is superior? Is that why? It seems like a desperate Hail Mary by a losing fantasy site. Zero RB1. It's over. It's finished. Look at the scoreboard. It reads zero minutes, zero seconds. The good guys won. Zero RB is victorious. It's over. And yet now, now, of all times, now, I'm hearing and reading revisionist history by vulture analysts looking to draft off the big hits by other fantasy sites and fantasy analysts to get retroactive credit. I actually invented zero RB. In my day, we called it upside down drafting. It's pathetic. And what makes it all the more absurd is that this lame PR gimmick is being partially perpetrated by football guys. Football guys. The strongest proponents of value-based drafting. <laughs> what? 
Like, what? I challenge you to find a better example of a fantasy site trying to have it both ways than football guys saying they invented both zero RB and value-based drafting. The cognitive dissonance that's required to accept that premise would melt your brain. The champions of value-based drafting also invented zero RB. That is just rich. It's rich because zero RB is the ultimate counterpoint to value-based drafting, as I explained earlier. It's not just that the intellectual underpinning of zero RB uses a polar opposite approach to roster construction when compared to value-based drafting. There are also substantive practical differences. I challenge anyone to find an article about upside-down drafting in which a quarterback wasn't selected early in which a running back wasn't selected by round four. C.J. Anderson is going in round four this year, and he's perceived as an every-down workhorse. You can't say your strategy is in any way comparable to zero RB and then insist fantasy gamers lock up C.J. Anderson in round four. You can't do it! You can! I mean, you can say it. You can say anything. It's the internet. You can say whatever you want. You can say anything. In fact, football guys claiming to have invented both zero RB and value-based drafting is evidence that you can, in fact, say anything you want on the internet. And what makes it even more rich, upside-down drafting isn't even a strategy. It's not. I talked earlier about why zero RB is fundamentally a strategy, not a tactic. Upside-down drafting is a tactic. It's not a strategy. Upside-down drafting is an intellectually shallow, early draft, zig-while-the-other-zag tactic. I like those kinds of tactics. I like to zig when others zag. But that's not a strategy. You can't talk about that as being in any way equivalent to zero RB. That's absurd. In the context of upside-down drafting, no one ever talked about building an anti-fragile roster by avoiding RBs altogether at all costs during the high-value rounds. No. And that's what the strategy is based on. Anti-fragility is the foundation of the strategy. It's something upside-down drafting never discussed. That's because the upside-down drafting approach is fundamentally an early-round micro-tactic. It's the same basic stuff that gets kicked around every August, which is partly why it never actually became a thing. Zero RB, on the other hand, will endure. Will endure as a complete draft strategy and roster construction blueprint because it is backed by truly insightful historical RB volatility and anti-fragility, a super sound conceptual underpinning. Something upside-down drafting is utterly missing. That's why this upside-down drafting zero RB dichotomy is an apples and oranges juxtaposition. But let's pretend they're similar. Let's pretend that the upside-down drafting people created a strategy based on anti-fragility, but it never took off. And then Sean Siegel published something very similar that did take off. Even though that's not the case, let's pretend that's what happened. Then what? Even then, coming out now and begging for retroactive credit would still represent the very heights of lameness. 
because ideas and products are only as good as the messaging behind them by the company marketers and the brand advocates. I have a marketing background and anyone with a marketing background understands that the proliferation of ideas and products is only as good as the corresponding messaging. A great idea is useless if no one ever talks about it. A great product is useless if it sits idle on the shelf and no one purchases it. It's why patents are overrated. Patents are overrated because idea ownership and product isolationism makes us all worse off. The more ubiquitous the best products and ideas are, the better off we all are. That's why I'm not trying to patent anything for playerprofiler.com. I'm not worried about anyone stealing my concept because I know how hard it was not just to build the product, but to market it. If you're great at execution and you're great at marketing, marketing meaning branding, marketing meaning messaging, marketing meaning influencing, if you're great at all those things, eventually the word will get out about your product and your product. And if your product is good, it will create buzz and it will endure. It will endure like the zero RB strategy, like playerprofiler.com. These are ideas and products that are built to endure. Upside down drafting is dead and will remain dead forever. It will remain dead because Rotoviz won the marketing battle. If you let the marketers in the marketplace decide which vendor wins, which fantasy site owns the zero RB concept, it's unanimous. Rotoviz has won. Football guys has lost. And now they're embittered and they want retroactive credit that isn't earned. Football guys should be taking their cues from Friendster. I went to friendster.com today. Don't do it. Only go to friendster.com if you want to be depressed because Friendster was Facebook before Facebook. And now when you go to friendster.com, you see a post-it note written by the last developer to work on the site talking about how the Friendster community had an enduring passion to make a difference, but due to the evolving landscape of their industry, they've had to rethink their strategic priorities, and thus they are taking a break and they are pausing all their services effective June 14th, 2015. And if you continue reading, you become more sad. We remain enthusiastic and will continue to try new things in the future to provide information about Friendster's next move. We cordially invite you to join an email distribution list and no email is provided. Sad. Reading the message on Friendster.com is demoralizing, but in a way it's inspiring because they chose a noble path at Friendster. They didn't jump up and down and say, we were here before Facebook, guys. Come on. Look at us. No, they said, we're not winning the social media game. Let's go become an online gaming community. And then they couldn't win the online gaming game. And they shut her down. They shut it down without launching a series of petty attacks against Facebook. Because complaining that Johnny stole my idea, guys. Look at me. I was here first. Give me credit. Come on, guys. I'm just as good as he is. Complaining that Johnny stole your idea is the height of lameness. It's lame because you're lashing out at others for your own shortcomings. Show me a stolen idea and I'll show you a bad marketer.